verses of the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1 and the first 14 verses of the Acts of the Apostles. Most of you, of course, know that Luke wrote both the Gospel according to Luke and also the Acts of the Apostles. It is interesting that this year, the year of Key 73, that this great evangelistic outreach all over the United States has had as one of its tasks, and many of you participated in that, many of you in this community, and passing out to people in, in our area a copy of Luke's two books, and what a wonderful two books they are. Let me read just the preface to the Gospel of Luke, and then let me turn and start reading from chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. Right now, this is Luke 1. Dear Theophilus, many people have already written an account of the events which have happened among us, basing their work on the evidence of those who we know were eyewitnesses as well as teachers of the message. I have therefore decided, since I have traced the course of these happenings carefully from the beginning, to set them down for you myself in their proper order, so that you may have reliable information about the matters in which you have already had instruction. Now that's the preface to the Gospel of Luke. This is the preface to the Acts of the Apostles. My dear Theophilus, in my first book, I gave you some account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the time of his ascension. Before he ascended, he gave his instructions through the Holy Spirit to the special messengers of his choice. For after his suffering, he showed himself alive to them in many convincing ways and appeared to them repeatedly over a period of 40 days, talking with them about the affairs of the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating a meal with them, he emphasized that they were not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. You have already heard me speak about this, he said, for John used to baptize with water, but before many days are passed, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This naturally brought them all together, and they asked him, Lord, is this the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To this he replied, You cannot know times and dates which have been fixed by the Father's sole authority, but you are to be given power when the Holy Spirit has come to you. You will be witnesses to me, not only in Jerusalem, not only throughout Judea, not only in Samaria, but to the very ends of the earth. When he had said these words, he was lifted up before their eyes to the cloud hid him from their sight. While they were still gazing up into the sky as he went, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? This very Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in just the same way as you have seen him go. At this they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives which is near the city, only a Sabbath day's journey away. On entering Jerusalem, they went straight to the upstairs room where they had been staying. There was Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Patriot, and Judas the son of James. By common consent, all these men together, with the women who had followed Jesus, and Mary his mother as well as his brothers, devoted themselves to prayer. 
Amen. May God bless to us an understanding from this part of his word. I wish you could have been over at the Sunday school building to have heard those young people reciting scripture this morning. It was impressive to me to see their knowledge of the Bible and how it applies to daily life. It showed that the teachers had certainly been doing a wonderful work in their instruction. I am thankful that in many churches people are getting back to being unashamed to say the name of Jesus, unashamed to sing about him, unashamed to talk about him, and unashamed to relate the message of the Bible to others. We have largely, many older people, have become ignorant of the use of the Bible, and I've often wondered why this is, with all of our brilliantly educated clergy, and with all of our buildings of Christian education, and all of the books of theology, why there seems to be such a dearth of just basic knowledge of Christianity. Well, this is, of course, incriminating upon us. I was looking at Fred Sanford the other night on the, oh, whatever that program is. He's very funny. He was misquoting a scripture, and he said uh, when someone got angry with him, and they, uh, he was trying to keep someone from hurting him, and he said, remember that the Bible says, he that liveth by the sword gets stuck. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was thinking that's funny in a way. And then another way, it really, there are a lot of people in the church who are just about that ignorant of the Bible. They don't know its message, and they need to know it. I, don't, I do not know who Theophilus was, but I expect one day to meet Theophilus in heaven. The word means friend of God, but there is a formal title given to it, most excellent Theophilus. He must have been some sort of governmental authority. Maybe he was in charge of some type of investigation that was writing to determine exactly what Christian believe, Christians believe. We know from the passages in the Acts of the Apostles that Luke joined Paul. We also know from letters of Paul that Luke was a physician. We also know that in the Gospel of Luke and also in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, there are many medical terms given. And this Christian doctor, who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, took it upon himself to write out a record of those things which were most assuredly believed by Christians. And so when he writes to this man whom he calls Most Excellent Theophilus, he begins to relate information which he had carefully traced out and which he believed to be reliable, so that they would know about Jesus. Now let's just suppose today that all of us would suddenly be plunged into a situation where Bibles would be taken away from us, where Christian broadcasts on radio and television would be banned, where there would be no hymn books, just suppose that in the disarray and demoralization that exists in America today, that Russia should suddenly put up an ultimatum and say we have circling in orbit around the earth a nuclear device which we are prepared to push the button on and bring down upon all of the major cities of the United States.
and vaporize you and destroy you unless you submit to our form of government. And then atheism would be the official religion. And all knowledge of God would be done away. And suppose I took pieces of paper and walked out amongst the congregation and said, you write out what you can remember of the life of Jesus. Set it down so that we can teach it. This has happened, and it's happening today. Not long ago, I had an interesting conversation with Dr. Billy Graham, and he told me of meeting someone out in the, uh, out close to China who had gotten out of China some information about Chinese Christians who were persecuted. They had copies, handwritten copies of sections of the Gospels and the Epistles and the Psalms and certain parts of the Old Testament. He said that there were secret little conclaves of believers that would meet. And when these little groups of believers would meet, that some, someone would say, you are Ephesians. And your task is to memorize Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You're Philippians. You're Colossians. You're the Acts of the Apostles. You're Matthew. You're Mark. You're Luke. You're John. And they would commit to memory whole books of the Bible. And in their meetings, when they got ready for a passage of Scripture, they did not have all these translations. They did not have all these Bibles. But they would say, okay, Luke, give us the preface. And he would stand up and recite those first four verses that I read from the Gospel of Luke. They'd say, all right, Acts, stand up, give us the first 14 verses of Acts. And they would recite it. They learned to treasure this information about the life of the Lord Jesus, about who he is and what he came to do. And this is the lesson that we have today. Because what we have read is a commission, and there is a promise in it. And what we need is a return, a real return, to really biblical Christianity. Away with the cultural orthodoxy, and back to the presentation that we have in the pages of the gospel records and of the Bible. C.S. Lewis. I told this at prayer meeting the other night, and there was such interest in it, I want to repeat it. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Oxford professor, professor at Cambridge also. C.S. Lewis has a, a little monogram, uh, a little paper that he read upon his inauguration as the professor of Renaissance literature at Cambridge. And this has meant a great deal to me it was given to me by an, uh, an Englishman, and I've kept it carefully, and I've read it over and over, and I enjoy it. Because when C.S. Lewis came and was inaugurated as the professor of Renaissance literature at Cambridge, he was, of course, to present a learned paper, a paper that dealt with uh, the Middle Ages, a paper that showed his qualifications for this distinguished chair. And in it, he gave a very interesting story about himself. He told of his belief in the supernatural. And he told of his belief in God and of his belief in Jesus Christ 
and of his belief in a spiritual world. He spoke about demons, and he spoke about angels. And Lewis said uh, to this group of distinguished, learned people who were there, he said, now, if all of you were professors of natural history instead of professors of English literature, and if this were a theater in which we had come together to discuss dinosaurs, and if I was lecturing to you on dinosaurs, and while I was lecturing to you on dinosaurs, a dinosaur su suddenly came into the room in back of me while I was speaking. He said, as you ran for the exits and jumped out of the windows, you would all cast your head back over your shoulders to get a glimpse of the dinosaur, because you're real scholars, you're scientists, you would want to know and record in your diary exactly what his skin looked like and the noises that he made and how he smelled. You'd want to write all of this down. Well, said C.S. Lewis, look at me. I am a dinosaur, he said. I am one of those people who believe in the supernatural. And what I'm saying to you is what we need to do is go back to the pages of Scripture. Read carefully what a disciple is according to Scripture and exactly what Jesus intended for his church to do. When we do this, we see remarkable things take place. Luke had, of course, written his first letter to Theophilus. This must have elicited some response. And so he writes a second paper First, he is talking about Jesus' ministry amongst these 12 apostles whom he had chosen. And then he begins to speak about that ministry in which the Holy Spirit comes and indwells 11 men Judas had now defected. And how they begin to fan out taking the message of the gospel. And as he begins it, he says, my first book. In my first book, I gave you some account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that he began to do and to teach until the time of his ascension. And then he said, by implication, Jesus is going to continue his work. His bodily presence will be withdrawn the end of that 40 days after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit will come. And he will work through these 11, and they will take the message out to the ends of the earth. So he says how Jesus told them, go back to Jerusalem, back to that dreadful place in which he had been crucified, back where so much hatred and malice had been directed toward those who followed him. Go back, back to Jerusalem, and wait, wait there for the fulfillment of the promise the promise was to be the coming of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that Jesus had said of the Holy Spirit was that the Holy Spirit would be the teacher who would cause them to remember the things which he had taught and the things which he had done. And Luke alludes to that in his first book. You see, the Holy Spirit had been at work in Luke. Luke had interviewed Mary. Luke had interviewed people like Cleophas. Luke had probably interviewed Zacchaeus. Luke had interviewed any number of people and talked to them. 
And the Holy Spirit was enabling them to recall, and they had told those stories over and over again. Now then, we're going to see this marvel take place in which the Shekinah, the glory of God in a cloud, takes Jesus away from their presence. And when he is taken from their presence, we read an amazing thing that there stood beside these 11 men who were there at Bethany, the, uh, at the Mount of Olives. These 11 men who were there. There stood beside them two angels who watched the ascension. They were enraptured with all of the Shekinah glory of God in receiving Jesus out of their sight. Overwhelmed by all of this, they stood gazing into the sky. And these two angels give some great advice to us. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? This very Jesus who has been taken away with you will come back in just the same way as you have seen him go. He has ascended one day he will come back again. But in between his ascension, which has already taken place, and his second coming, he has given us work to do. And he speaks about that work. First of all, we are instructed, every single believer in Jesus, not just preachers, not just those who happen to have a religious bent, but every single person who names the name of Jesus as Lord is commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ that he is to be a witness to him. He is to be a witness. That is our commission. We are commissioned to be his witnesses. Now what is a witness? A witness is a person who knows something. You're watching the Watergate trial, some of you on television. The other day when one of the men was testifying, he was interrupted by Senator Gurney from Florida. And the senator said to the committee and to the television audience and to the chairman, what he is reporting is hearsay. This can be damaging. And we should not admit it to record. A witness is someone who speaks not of hearsay, but through personal experience. Have you had a personal experience of the conscious lordship of Jesus? Is he really consciously lord of your life or not? If you're called upon to be a witness for him, what would you witness to? What has been your experience of him? What do you believe about these things that Luke has written in his record of the gospel and in this book of Acts? What do you believe about it? Secondly, a witness realizes that what he knows is a matter of importance. That's why these men are flown from great distances and an enormous cost. They are witnesses, and they are supposed to have a matter of importance bearing upon an important matter. If it is really true that Jesus is God in human flesh, if it is really true that there is a heaven and a hell, and that people can be won or lost for eternity, then whatever Christianity is, it is not boring. It is the most exciting thing in the whole wide world. It is the most blessed news. What news it brings. 
A witness is one who speaks on a matter of importance. And if you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, then you have a witness to bear. But a witness has to do something else. Thirdly, a witness has to testify no matter what it may cost him personally. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you should give in this case shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? If you were sworn in and asked to give your testimony, what would you say about Jesus and his lordship over your life? may cost you, may be fired from your job. There are Christians who are persecuted in China, in Eastern Europe, in many sections of the world. There are Christians who are even mocked at here in this own country and sometimes by the religious hierarchy itself. But what about it? Are you prepared? Prepared really? to live under the conscious lordship of Jesus and to be his witness? Well, what are we to witness to? The same things that Luke wrote about, the good news, the gospel, that there is salvation in the full sense of the word. Salvation through Jesus Christ and his daily presence with us. We are to be witnesses to him. Never be ashamed of Jesus. Paul could write to Rome, and the Acts of the Apostles starts out in Jerusalem, and it ends up with Paul in Rome. Paul could write that letter to the Roman Christians and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This means that we have a responsibility to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Where are we supposed to witness? Well, I stressed a moment ago that they were told to go back to Jerusalem. And I'll tell you right now the toughest place to witness. To your wife. To your husband. To your children. In your home. In your community. With the people with whom you work day by day. Do they see in you anything that could be called the light of the world? Anything that could be called the salt of the earth? Do they see in you the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Do, do you ever speak a good word for Jesus Christ? Why the conspiracy of silence on the part of so many people? It has no, no, no support whatever from the New Testament at all. We are to witness Witness for him, Jesus Christ, where we're to witness there like concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, and here comes the race thing. Samaria. He said they're a bunch of Samaritan lovers. See, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what this is all about. That's how we're supposed to witness. Just keep on witnessing and going out with it. Where? How are we to witness? We are to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I do not believe that any man can say that Jesus is Lord and mean it apart from the Holy Spirit.
I believe that the Holy Spirit is already indwelling every single true believer in Jesus Christ, or he wouldn't be a believer. But he gives us the power to witness. He gives us the power to witness, and that witness, that, that power that he gives, here the Greek word that is used is, is, is the same word from which we get dynamite. I started to go down to the shop and get a stick of dynamite and bring it up here today and, and hold it up. I was afraid someone would accuse me of being a snake handler or something. So I, <laughs> I didn't bring it. Dynamite. Spiritual dynamite. Spiritual power. We've got an energy crisis that's being talked about. The fossil fuels are going away. Gasoline is supposed to go to a dollar a gallon. We are rapidly approaching uh, a, a crisis point uh, with our use of energy and power, so we're being concerned with it. Well, there is a power available, a power available to us which we greatly and desperately need, and that power which works in us and is essential to our Christian life is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is called the Comforter to encourage us in times of trouble and distress and persecution. It says here that when Jesus has ascended, that these disciples returned to Jerusalem in great joy. They went back full of joy. What a remarkable thing. Jesus was taken away, and yet they are full of joy. They are full of joy because one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is joy. And how he does work in us. How does he work? He works by yielding ourselves to him. By yielding ourselves to him. Dwight Lyman Moody was a shoe salesman whose first ambition was to make $100,000 in the shoe business. A Sunday school teacher witnessed to him in a shoe store in Boston, and Dwight L. Moody was converting. He moved from Boston to Chicago, and in Chicago he started a Sunday school. He was so full of enthusiasm, that is God's energy working in him, that he began to, to form a big Sunday school of little happy children who were singing Bible verses. Moody was not trained in a theological seminary, he had none of the formal training that goes with it. They used to call him Crazy Moody because of all the things that he would do trying to get children to come to Sunday school. And he had such a big Sunday school that a candidate for public office by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who had won the election at that time, actually visited Mr. Moody's Sunday school in, in Chicago. It was such a marvel of the city. Someone once said of Mr. Moody, they said, does Mr. Moody think that he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And a person who knew Mr. Moody well said, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. He was yielded to him, and the Lord used him. This is what happens when we are willing to be yielded to him. When I think about those 11 men, Judas is, is of course, gone here. They were there when Jesus ascended. What Jesus said to them, Oh, mercy, if you were filling out forms to mail it to denominational headquarters to get these men a job, it would be pitiful. <laughs> Here is Matthew. 
Matthew was a crook. A real 29 carat crook. Slimy, sneaky character who collaborated with the hated Romans. Who would trust Matthew? That's one of the people that Jesus puts his message in. And look at Peter. Peter, I always am so thankful for this remarkable person. Peter had trouble with his mouth. He could put both feet in his mouth at the same time. Someone has said that a closed mouth catches no feet. <laughs> but <laughs> Peter couldn't keep his mouth closed except at the wrong time. He was a brash braggart. And if you had been looking, you would have said, Oh, no, 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 Jesus, whatever you do, don't entrust your kingdom to someone like him. He gets in trouble everywhere he goes. Every time he opens his head, he's in trouble. You mean you're entrusting him? And there is the John Birch Society. Here, here, here is Simon the Zealot, the Patriot, the bomb thrower. That's another one of them. Here's Thomas. Thomas is the pessimist. The doubter. Full of melancholy. Every time you bring up anything, oh, it'll never work. Don't do that. And yet these were the people upon whom the Spirit came. And the Lord Jesus used this bunch when they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they took his saving message to the very ends of the earth. Because they yielded to him. There is an old fable. That when Jesus returned to heaven. That he was asked by some of the angels. They said. What was it like? What was it like when you tried to teach men? Would they listen to you? And they said some. Jesus said well some would and some wouldn't. And they said. You mean they wouldn't even listen to you though you're the son of God? And Jesus said, no, some of them would not. And they said, well, what, what did you do when you died on the cross? And Jesus explained that this was in the Father's plan for salvation. They said, when you rose again from the dead and you went to visit all of these disciples of yours and these others who were witnesses of your resurrection... How was that? And he told them. And then they said, well, what plans do you have for getting out your message? And Jesus said, the plans I have are in those 11 men. And the angel said, you think you're going to get your message to all of the ends of the earth by those 11 men? Jesus said, yes, I trust my men. All of those 11 who formed the leadership of the early church, as far as we know, died deaths of martyrdom. They were yielded, committed to the Lordship of Christ. What he needs today is not the Rotary Club, Country Club variety of Christianity. That's the greatest thing the devil ever got up. What he really needs or people who can write a letter to most excellent Theophilus, a learned brother in a place of authority, and speak to them about Jesus. 
People who can speak to little children like Moody. People like John and Charles Wesley who could write songs and preach sermons and turn a whole country to faith in Jesus Christ. The month of May is the month of the Wesleys. John and Charles were both converted during the month of May, and they were both preachers. They were both graduates of Oxford University, but they had an experience of the Holy Spirit in May of 17 and 38 that transformed their lives. Last Sunday, we sung Charles Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. He wrote that on the anniversary of his conversion on May the 21st, 1738. His brother Charles was converted four days later. You know, I got to think about that last Sunday when I was over at Appalachian Hall. And not only a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, Think of all the millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who have sung Charles Wesley's hymn of praise to his Redeemer because he let the Holy Spirit work in his life and in his heart. He gave us a commission to be his witnesses and he gave us the promise of power. Our responsibility is to yield, to obey. Let us stand in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will truly come and inspire us. so that Jesus will be central in our lives and minds and hearts, so that we might realize that we are not to relegate to ancient history either the Gospel of Luke or the Acts of the Apostles, but we are to carry on these acts by letting the Holy Spirit work through us today, where we are at home, wherever we go, relating the love and the ministry of Jesus in our hearts and lives. Forgive us that we have made so little of what has been made available to us, but help us, O oh God, in a new resolve and determination to so yield ourselves to Christ that others will see that change which the Spirit brings as Jesus lives and moves through us today. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the power of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.